I sent Thomas a story over the weekend by email. My subject line for the email was, is this as bad as it sounds? It was from CNN, but there were a lot of other news organizations reporting, and I'll just read you the headline. China blasts U.S. bully, says it will fight to the end for Taiwan. Uh, so let me say that again. What it really is saying, they left a word out. China blasts U.S. as bully, says it will fight to the end for Taiwan. I said to Thomas, uh, is this as bad as it sounds? And uh, I wondered if it had been well-timed to get buried by the January 6th hearings, because it seems to me that that's really been dominating the news. I mean, not surprisingly. Uh, Thomas's response was, it's not great. The Chinese economy is at a standstill. Youth unemployment nears 20%. This could reforce the regime's hand. I mean, this is not, this is not where I think any of us want the world to be going. This is not a great piece of news in the middle of an invasion, uh, in, in the middle of the invasion with Ukraine. Um, as I started to say, it seems like things, you know, there's been periods where it felt like Ukraine was really um, having incredible success given their size relative to the size of Russia and the Russian army. But this seems like just one of those periods where it's a real struggle. And the struggle is both on the battlefield and I think, I think, and as well as with the allies. And um, that's really concerning. Uh, there's still talk of appeasement, you know, um, so Jeff can no longer hear me. Can everyone else hear me? Jeff, hit refresh on your browser. Of course, Jeff, you can't hear me say that because you've got no sound, but Lucas is going to tell you, uh, Jeff, hit refresh. Uh, we're just, uh, we're having uh, tech issues here today. I'm sorry to say, um, and I have not seen, uh, I, there's Thomas. I'm going to try to re-invite him. Hold on a sec, everybody. And, uh, let's see what's going on. Let's see if we can get Thomas on here. Otherwise you're going to get to hear me talk for 30 minutes today. Thomas, I just uh, re-invited you. I hope you can hear me now, Thomas, and uh, we'll see what happens when you join the show. Anyway, it just, this seems like a period of real struggle for, uh, uh, for Ukraine. And that's really unfortunate. Um, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, well, let's blame it on your computer then. How's that? Uh, uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, it's great to have you here. I was just, uh, sort of, uh, sharing my view of what's happening right now. It seems like things are really a struggle in Ukraine right now, both on the battlefield and with allies, uh, you know, talks, continued talk of appeasement and things. Do you want to talk about the current state in Ukraine since I've already brought up the conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult moment, really. Uh, we know that um, a lot of high-end material is still underway. Um, some of this is, uh, already in Poland or somewhere close to the Ukrainian border. Um, but it's far away from Poland yes. to the front line. And Russians of course are focusing very much so on attacking the depots, not only the fuel, but wherever they know anything of the, uh, of the depots for the Western, uh, equipment being delivered. Now, um, this is easier done, uh, whenever this equipment is stored somewhere much more difficult when it's in transport. So it's a lot more 
difficult to actually hit a moving convoy uh, from, say, you know, hundreds of kilometers. Russians have some high precision missiles, but not that many to actually stop all of these convoys. Um, but, you know, trying to, uh, you know, they know where they, where the rail lines are, but the moving target yeah. is a moving target, right? So they missing some of those and, you know, whenever they can, they, they hit it. All of this slows down the process. I think the real risk is that Russia's the, from the military perspective seems to have extended its logistical plans till October. So at least the war will go in its current phase until October. Russians are not interested in negotiating until then. And about 200, over 200 tanks uh, have been grouped uh, not far away from Mykolaiv, which would mean that an attack on Odessa is, uh, is, is planned, at least from, from the land, as Ukrainians have been very successful pushing away Russian Navy away from Odessa to about 100 kilometers south of the, of the coast. Um, but that would, of course, raise, you know, alarm in Moldova uh, if that happened. Putin had a strange speech the other day where he actually, I think it was June 12th, the Russia Day, where he spoke at length about the Northern War, the Great Northern War um, against Sweden. That war lasted for about 20 years, two decades. Sweden on its side had um, you know, Prussia as well as Saxony or the, the Saxon king of Poland at the time which in the long term was disastrous for Poland because of the result of this war, uh, Russia took over the Balt what we call today the Baltic countries, Estonia and Livonia, uh, as well as part of uh, what used to be historically Finland or Swedish Finland. Um, so 21 years and Peter the Great, this seems to be the benchmarks by which uh, the Russian dictator is, is, is uh, uh, measuring himself. Um, which is bad news for everybody. Now on the yeah. diplomatic front, I think we spoke about it before. We have increasing, unfortunately, this fissure between the countries that are directly, uh, uh, threatened by Russia and those that are further away in Europe. And that's precisely what Moscow needs. Some kind of, um, goes along different lines. It's not only about the equipment, but it's also about how much say France, uh, Italy, or Germany, to some extent, at least the, the main ruling party of the coalition would like to, to stop this conflict as soon as possible in its current uh, stage. And for this reason, Draghi, Macron, and Schultz are planning to visit Kiev. Um, this of course raises alarm in Eastern Europe, um, because of the recognition that freezing this, uh, conflict right now would simply give Russia time to rearm and prepare for. Uh, you know, stage three, uh, third partition of Ukraine a couple of years from now, maybe. Now this is, you know, th that preparation, I mean, we're going far ahead in near future, um, but it would be really bad news for most of those countries that are involved very strongly in helping Ukraine, not least Poland. Without that Polish border and Romania, to some extent, Ukraine wouldn't be where it is today. It probably would have lost already half of its country. So one of the things that Russia during this intervening period between the second partition on Ukraine and the future third partition of Ukraine would do is to uh, somehow um, threaten those countries in, in the East while at the same time incentivizing the Western part of Europe, Germany again, France and so on to resume business as usual. I think that's not likely, at least not likely in Germany to happen. Um, France is a, is a, is a different story. As I think we discussed before, it's not in French interest to have 
US as a hegemon in Europe in the longer term. And from this perspective, uh, French and Russian interests are, uh, you know, aligned. Um, so France will try to torpedo the idea that, you know, has germinated in the EU commission to fast track Ukraine's, and by the way, Moldova's, uh, and Georgia's, uh, membership in, in the European Union. And so the commission is trying to push for this, um, Ms. von der Leyen has now visited, uh, Kiev twice. And she's been, a, you know, a strong supporter of Ukraine's membership and fast track. Um, that's not something that France would like. Why? Because that would mean that a block of Eastern countries, including Ukraine and Poland in the EU's voting system would occasionally be able to outvote France or French German bloc. Mm. And so it's a big threat for, for France and, and France's designs to have a sort of a two speed Europe, right? So the Western Europe, the core Euro countries, and then this sort of, you know, backward part of, of, of Eastern Europe, Germany, somewhere in, in between, you know, I watch a lot of German media and very interesting <laughs> there are, um, some people who are against the position taken by SPD, the social Democrats say that actually what Ukraine does militarily and what all of these countries from Finland through Romania are doing in terms of very, very strong support and, and clear positioning vis-a-vis -vis the invasion actually helps reinvigorate the European Union, which was mm. more for, for so long, right? It gives them a real, a, a real direction. Um, so. I think at least in Germany, um, the elites are very divided and the public is still very much in favor of Ukraine and integrating Ukraine. So far, the integration of the, of several million of refugees in various countries, um, is progressing, you know, fairly smoothly. So, you know, that shows that the commitment of, of Ukrainians in general, not only on the battlefield, but in general, as Europeans as easily assimilated to Europeans and country that would benefit hugely from European Union's um, membership during the reconstruction, um, you know, that would speed up things so much more easily than if Ukraine was not part of European Union, or at least yes. fast track to join it. Um, that, you know, that, that would be an extreme opportunity, great opportunity for investment, high return investment in that country. If however, we freeze it and await yet another war, nothing will happen. Right. Yeah. And here's, you're going to have a half failed state with a lot of weapons, with a lot of people who will, will be very disappointed by what, you know, the French or the Italians would have designed for them. And I, I wouldn't like to see that in Europe, honestly, that would be a big, big trouble going forward. Not to mention the fact that, um, you know, the East will have to really, really rearm itself very, very strongly as, as we discussed before, the United States will not have the bandwidth to operate on two front lines as the situation in East Asia you know, keeps the terror. Yeah. I want to ask you a couple more questions about this and then we'll, we'll move on to, uh, I think we need to talk about Taiwan too. Um, Germany is taking a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is, is getting hit with a lot of really bad publicity about making promises to Ukraine and not delivering. We're all seeing this. How accurate is that? Is, is that hyperbole or is that really what's been happening so far? It's, it's half accurate. So depending on which side of the political divide it is, you can exploit it this way or another. It is true that Germany has bad rap and deserves it partly for its past policies, right? Because essentially it's energy policy is what allows uh, Putin to wage this war. 
Yes. However, it is not entirely true that Germany does nothing. In terms of uh, financial and humanitarian support, they are way ahead of everybody else with the exception of the United States. It's at the military level where things move slowly, but things move, move slowly only maybe partly because of ill will of a left wing of social democratic party mm. that sort of slows things down. In reality, it, it, it moves slowly because Germany doesn't have an army. Okay. Mm. Shocker. So I remember yeah. during the cold war, I'm sufficiently old to remember that Bundeswehr was the most powerful army after the U S army within NATO. There's nothing left of this. I'll give you an example. Polish government, which is generally very anti-German, is exploiting this moment precisely because of what you mentioned, because it's, you know, it's a good time to actually whip up the, the German boy a little bit. And so they said, look, Germans, we, we sent 230 tanks to, to, uh, to Ukraine. By the way, I overheard two days ago that it's, the number has doubled now, which would be quite mm -hmm. amazing, but so far confirmed it's 230. And so we expect those lepers to come from Germany for the rollover. To which a German officer, a senior officer of German army explained, where did that come from? Poland has 12 tank battalions, 12 tank battalions. That's 930 tanks of which they sent 230. How can we replace 230 tanks? If Germany has six tank battalions altogether, six tank yes. battalions, they have 300 tanks. By sending 230 tanks to Poland, they deprived themselves of whatever is left of Bundeswehr after years and years and years and years of, what do I call it? Um, uh, appeasement, <laughs> yes. of Putin, you know, with beautiful energy policy and let's spend everything on our social contract on low, at low energy prices and let's not spend anything on, on defense, even though U.S. presidents starting, especially with Trump, have been trying to really pressure Germany to spend at least 2% of their GDP, to which Merkel said, no, 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 we're not going to do this. The result is there is no army. Right. The officer is correct. And, you know, the Polish government is trying to, you know, gain some extra brownie points here on, you know, and, and for them, nothing's good because when Germany announces, okay, we're going to spend hundred billion euro on Germany, then the Polish right-wingers say, oh my God, Germany's uh, rearming, maybe that's against us, you know, so. Yes. You can't win it, right, with, with them. Uh, but the truth is, bizarre stuff is happening. They spent about two months waiting between the famous speech at the end of February by uh, Olaf Scholz, the Zeitenwende, the sort of change of times, until finally two months later, the Parliamentary Commission um, pressured the government to do something, end of April, okay? They said, okay, we're gonna spend send that many, for example, um, uh, armored vehicles. To, uh, to, to Ukraine. Meanwhile, those armored vehicles went down to Greece and then Greece sent for a rollover system, this 40 year old equipment. So you're wondering why, why that this happened, mm. right? So there are some mysterious things and that's why, you know, parts of the elites that are very critical of this government and indeed even the Green Party, which is part of the coalition are, are critical of what the, 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 the chancellor and, and the chancellor's office are doing about it. So there are some mysterious things there, and that's, there's some explaining that Schultz will have to do when he visits Zelensky in Kiev. So you had suggested to me that we talk about a, a school of thought about these affairs called the realist school. Kissinger, uh, is it Mersheimer? I, I Mers the name Mers right. Yeah, Mersheimer. <clears throat> Explain about him. And then talk about their view of the world. And, and, and I'm guessing you're going to say 
it's the wrong view for this time, but, but I'm going to open the floor to you. Look, I think we, we mentioned, uh, this already in both gentlemen, uh, before as they have come quite prominent again, since the beginning of the war in, in American political thinking, there are essentially two traditional schools. One is the realist schools that they represent, which is everything that counts as power and big powers will just figure out their interests, right? So it's all about interests and power. And the other school is what we call Wilsonian school. So it deals with values. Values matter. So if we as America, we are a democracy, we naturally will be supporting democracies. Um, now in between there is, there is sort of a syncretic view that says, well, okay, in internal politics, there are values, but in foreign affairs, they're only interests. Mm. Mersheimer and Kissinger have been vocal. And we talk about Kissinger uh, speaking at Davos, um, saying that essentially we need to stop it now because Partly what's happening is our fault because we didn't really play that power politics possible in, in an adequate way. Kissinger, of course, has some meaningful achievements in his career from 50 years ago in Beijing. And so the view, which he doesn't really voice, but he doesn't seem to disagree with that, is that America should engineer a reverse Kissinger today. Since China is our number one enemy, uh, our number one rival, in what we discussed last time, this, the competitive strategy of yeah. the United States, and not only United States, but many of our allies who are our allies, precisely because of their competitive strategy aligns with our, ours on this front line, and that's Japan and Australia and India, uh, not to mention Taiwan, of course. Um, but in his, in the view of, of this reverse Kissinger, we actually need Russia in some form mm. to, and we need to split it away from China. And so where I have a big issue with this, because there's one man, an important politician who has been trying to do precisely that, and not since February 28th, but for the last eight years, and that's Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe, former prime minister of Japan, still probably the most powerful Japanese politician, head of the largest faction of Jiminto, the, the ruling party. When Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, Japan stood out by being very slow and soft on sanctions as Abe consistently was trying to engineer precisely this policy, split Russia away from China by offering no. peace. You know, Japan and Russia before Soviet Union have not signed the peace treaty since the yes. second world war. Russia continues to occupy four islands. Japanese called them Hoporyodo, so four islands north of Hokkaido. Um, and because of that, they only normalized, uh, relations with USSR, I think in 1951, but there has no been a peace treaty. And so this issue comes up occasionally very strongly during Yeltsin times, Yeltsin almost sold these islands and some nationalists pushed back against that. Anyway, it's still under Soviet or no Russian administration. And Abe was ready to compromise on that. Maybe let's split them two and two and let's get all this gas you know, from Yamal or from, from, from somewhere else in Russia to Japan, particularly, you know, that's important since the Fukushima disaster and mm -hmm. multi-year crisis in energy, um, supply to Japan, that Japan had to, you know, solve by importing liquid natural gas from Qatar, it, you know, four five, six times the prices that we have here in the United States. And so, and interestingly enough, Putin didn't decide to do this and there are historical reasons for that. Uh, for Russia, and we will come back to this in future, 
to understand that better because this is an interesting triangle. Um, but it just, it just illustrates that splitting Russia from China is not that easy. Why is that? People like Mersheimer and Kissinger think purely in terms of historical background of Anglo-Saxon nations, especially America. And if you think about the Anglo-Saxon history, they would like to bring up, look, Russia has always been an ally of Anglo-Saxons historically. Look at the Napoleonic Wars. Look at the First World War. Look at the Second World War, at least the second half of the Second World War. Look at the battle against Hirohito. You know, Russia invaded Manchuria in 1945, okay. breaking uh, a neutrality pact that it has with, with Japan, which long survived <clears throat> Russia's alliance, the Soviet Union's alliance with Nazi Germany. And so, you know, these four examples say, well, look, Russia's always on our side. So why are we battling Russia? Um, to which, you know, I answer, yeah, but China has almost always has on the Russia's side and vice versa with two examples, two exceptions, sorry. And these exceptions are so rare that they happened hundred years apart. And that's what Kissinger forgets. Why? Because when Kissinger stepped into Beijing in early 1972 or 50 years ago to discuss, uh, in secret with true and lie recognition of PRC. First resumption of um, relations with Beijing, then Nixon's trip, and then eventually resumption of, of full diplomatic um, relations already under President Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Kissinger thought in terms of the China-Soviet split, which started in, back in 1961. We mentioned this last time. This happened because of the ideological split between Mao and people who replaced Stalin in Moscow, especially Khrushchev. And so it intensified under the, during the Brezhnev times and led to a small war in, in the Far East and between China and Russia. But this was a period of about 20 years. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the actual geostrategic reasons for the China-US relation collapsed. There's no reason mm -hmm. for that. The reason why uh, the first president Bush and Bill Clinton pushed so much for, you know, pro-Chinese policies in Washington is because of the industrial lobbies. And then financial lobbies in this country that forced the first president Bush to completely blink after Tiananmen, right? Within two months, yes, he resumed business as usual. So, uh, you know, Kissinger may think about that intervening period from 1961 to probably, you know, collapse of Soviet Union. So about 30 years of, of chill in the China, Russia relations. And there was another 20, 25 year period of chill after the so-called Beijing convention. Beijing Convention was signed by what's called the Western powers, although Russia was part of those, and Beijing. These are the unequal treaties that the Chinese, you know, uh, tend to focus on a lot in their sort of historiographic victimhood theory. And this is, you know, when Qing Dynasty was very weak, um, you know, different unequal treaties were signed and Russia was part of that. And for the next maybe 20 years, you know, you can basically argue that the, the, relations between Moscow and Beijing were very frosty. However, they, they warmed up again, uh, in the late eighties, uh, when they found the common enemy again, and just like the common enemy in the 1990s in 1996, when Russia and China created the Shanghai cooperation organization, the common enemy for them was United States, especially pushing out the United States from central Asia in the 1880s, the common enemy was Japan. 
and Japan mm -hmm. and, and Russia vied for influence in Manchuria and in Korea, both of which were, you know, vassal entities under the Qing dynasty, but Qing was very, very weak. You know, those two powers eventually clashed. They clashed in, you know, 1905, there was a famous war, a big shock in the West, an Asian power, a rising power, Japan beat a Western power that is Russia, right? And their whole history since then, we can go through, you know, in, in, in detail, just to show that historically, this relationship is strong. And look at, look at, you know, today, today, Russia and China have military cooperation. It's already imbalanced. It's imbalanced because China is very actively uh, pilfering Russian uh, technology. So one reason why Russia stopped uh, exporting the S-400 uh, anti-air force, I mean, air uh, defense systems to, to Russia, uh, to, to China, but it continues to sell them to India or Turkey even, mm. um, is that they're afraid of this being reverse engineered by the Chinese, which the Chinese did with a lot of airplanes and other, other Russian equipment. It's right. also, it's also imbalanced because Chinese spies are better in Russia than Russian spies are in China. Uh, there is some evidence that Igor Sechin, who's probably number three in Russia, he's a CEO of Rosneft, the oil company, state-owned company and former, um, uh, deputy prime minister of Russia, like, just like Putin, a former KGB guy, that he's completely in the pockets of, of the Chinese, as are many former Western politicians, right? Um, and we saw, for example, last week, very interestingly, that Huawei, as you know, this is the essentially state-owned or communist party-owned uh, high technology company, among others known for developing cheaply 5G networks around the world, they pulled out from Russia. This is interesting, right? Because they're already under sanctions. So it's not like they will be afraid of sanctions. It's simply Russian markets too small compared to whatever else they can salvage in, mm. in the non-Russian non, non markets elsewhere. Uh, at the beginning of this war, a Chinese ambassador to Moscow, when he saw what happened on the Moscow Stock Exchange on, on February 24th, which bizarrely was not closed, uh, you know, everything basically tanked 25%. Uh, you know, he made a phone call to Beijing saying, look, now we can all come and just get it five cents on the dollar. Right. Uh, it hasn't happened. And interestingly enough, none of this happened eight years ago after the first Ukrainian war, I remember traveling in Kazakhstan with some, uh, Moscow based Russian analysts, uh, three years ago. And they told me about all of this process, the hopes of, of Chinese banks coming in after, after Crimea takeover and recapitalizing elements of the, of the Russian economy never happened, never happened because it just illustrates just how over-dependent on access to the dollar the Chinese financial system is obviously, and so are the companies, even such companies as Huawei. So it's, it's quite, it's quite remarkable that we have that relationship, but this relationship is somewhat, somewhat unbalanced. So well, Kissinger is right, is that Russians and Chinese, they don't like each other. Mm. Um, you know. For many years, when I worked in China or Hong Kong, you know, I asked about, about Russia and I always got this very condescending look, you know, who cares, you know, we can deal with China here is big. Russia is just a small thing. It doesn't matter. You know, there's one or two oligarchs who listed like Oleg Deripaska, his aluminum business, he listed it in Hong Kong, qualified success, but overall very little interest, uh, from, from Chinese, side. uh, it, from the Russian side, uh, with respect to China, I would call it 
outright racism. Um, right now, there are probably three potential outcomes for Russia. Uh, one outcome is let's re-engage with the, with the West and maybe France and Italy will help us freeze this conflict and let's re-engage. The second one is complete isolation. And the third one is China. But of course, in what I just described, Russia will be a junior partner with China. <clears throat> They're not used to it. I'll give you an example. Mao Zedong was, uh, you know, he, he idolized Stalin, right? Stalin was actually not very uh, supportive of CCP originally during the civil war, but he, he supported Guomindang and, and actually come in turn, the, the communist, uh, international supported Guomindang since 1921. Uh, and so what happens is that, uh, when Mao for the first time went to Moscow in 1949, he, he had to wait for, for many days before Stalin uh, allowed him to come and, and, and visit him. So this is an old game between the Chinese, the Chinese and the Russians have been playing it for centuries. Indeed, the Russians, the moment they, the, the, the Russian Moscow, started spreading East, that's the attitude they had to a lot of other rulers, right? That they are subservient someone to Russian, Russian yes. Uh, but the problem is the Chinese got exactly the same attitudes, right? The Chinese emperor had the same attitudes. They couldn't understand each other for a long time. They couldn't understand each other from, you know, beginning of 17th century where those, the first contact started. And so this example of Mao waiting for Stalin, you know, that is something that stays in the Russian mind. We are somewhat superior. You know, we are, we are, we are not, we're not yellow, right. To put it bluntly. Um, and there is, and there is a disconnect between what the Russian elites think and what the Russian population thinks. The Russian populations out of those three options sees two as really plausible. One is let's re-engage to the West. It was good to have, you know, Facebook or whatever, although they have contacts, but it was good to have, uh, you know, Apple pay, or it was good to have, you know, access to credit cards and travel to the West and, and, and have all those perks and McDonald's and so on. So there are people who would like to go back to what it was before February 24th. And there is another group who would believe, you know what? We started it. We are a great empire. We have to be an empire. Screw the Ukrainians, Moldova, Lithuania is ours. So whatever it takes, whatever the cost is doing. That's the, like, you know, men in the street thinking. The elites see it differently. They realize that going back to what Zapadniki, so Western thinkers in Russia wanted is probably not viable in foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it is between isolation and reliance on China. And many yeah. of them say, you know what, we would hate to be a vassal of China, but it's worse if we just disappear into a complete black hole, except they will not inform the population that that's the eventual, um, choice that they will default. And by the way, no decision like this has been taken because of course the kinetic conflict is still mm -hmm. playing out. So, so we don't know how, it, how it's going to end. I can't see Putin making either of those choices. Um, so who do you think who would make the choice for him? You tell me. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe that means like pushing things away. I mean, there are the, the, the two views that we either isolate or we orientate ourselves somewhat further to, to the East actually represented in somewhat institutionalized way. 
there is the former is represented by a man Andrei Unitsky. He's uh, he's of the view that you know, given that this war can can last for a while, uh, the army and and the economy should be somehow fused. So let's militarize the economy a little bit like Stalinism, right? And let's mm-hmm. just like uh, really squeeze the resources for for rejuvenation of the nation. So and of course, people like General Shoigu they love that option. The other option is a club of, you know, some oligarchs and so on, it's called Stolpinski Club. And here they believe, you know, let's do something what China did it back in 1990s. So let's have this system of no, no political liberalism at all, but to some extent, economic liberalism within the country. Let's, you know, invest hugely in all the Siberian cities and open to Chinese capital and so on. So there, there's, there, there are those, those two views. And I think the latter will have a problem with, um, you know, with the with the general Russian population, you know, one of the worst thing you can say to a Russian person is, you know what, you are a Mongol. Mm. Now, of course, the 300 years of Moscow's subservience to Mongolia, uh, to Golden Horde, so the post-Mongol and then Mongol Turkic state. Um, and so maybe that has some historical roots, uh, but it's also, you know, importantly, a, a sort of a, a racialist statement. Uh, let me just reminisce about an experience that I had once many years ago when I um, worked on a project in Far East Siberia, actually in Far East, Russian Far East, so RFE we call it, further east than Siberia. This is, this is in the Amur region, so north of, of China, the former Manjuria. And we worked there with um, a Russian oligarch. Uh, this is in mining business. So an oligarch, it's not an oligarch like Abramovich or, you know, Potanin multi-multi-billion, it's sort of like middle-sized oligarch. Still an oligarch, always a couple of gorillas around him. And anyway, it was a fascinating trip. Um, it's already 19 years ago. Um, but I remember how I was struck that the plant around the mine used uniquely just Chinese equipment. That surprised me. So, you know, you have a lot of monitors and everything is in Hanze, so in Chinese characters. So I'm asking, you know, the management. So, are are your people able to to read all these characters and say, um, um, no? But it doesn't matter. It's always the same. You know, it's always the same flotation, and it's always the same mm-hmm. kiln, or it's you know always the same uh, rotary, or whatever you know, or, or grinder, and so on. So it's it doesn't matter. Okay. After that, you know, visit to the mine, multiple visits. Um, on the last day, I remember I woke up early and I walked in the city, it's called Blagoveshchensk. It's right on the border with China. Um, there's a sort of a twin city just on the other side called Heihe. Um, And Blagoveshchensk looks like a mix between, you know, Khrushchev times and maybe Tsarist times. So all the buildings were either 50, 60 years old or 100 years old. Those 100 years old actually looks much nicer. Mm. Or Russia, you know, they take to paint the facades with very stark colors. It's actually unique, pretty, you know, very bright uh, blue-green or very bright pink-orange or something like that. Uh, the, the Khrushchev times or Brezhnev times, you know, block buildings were drab. Um, and so I decided to just walk up and down the, the, the riverbank, and I found a big, unusual structure that seemed to be unfinished. It's kind of like, like a huge pyramid. And it was, it was the cultural center of the Far East that Soviets started to build back in 1975 and never finished, right? So by then it was a lot of graffiti on this, you know, punk, anarchy, whatever. It was fenced off. 
And so for th almost 30 years, the, the building was being built, okay? Right on that, on the border <laughs> with China and right next to it, a very small, um, but gleaming building was built and it was a casino. And this mm. was a casino built by the Chinese. And it took them a week to build that casino. Okay. And it was called Peter the Great Casino. Mm. And so, of course, I took pictures and I, you know, walked back and the sun is rising, counting time to departure uh, back to Moscow. And, you know, this is a time still not far away from 1990. So a lot of shuttle traders, shuttle traders with those massive, you know, Hong Kong nylon bags, white, blue, and red. And, you know, most of them coming from China across the bridge. And I'm looking at those tall, gleaming, you know, shimmering steel and glass buildings on the other side in China, you know, it's all modern, very fresh, new, uh, office buildings. And this, the sun is reflected through those windows and dazzles me and blinds me. And I can't really focus, cannot really see China, you know, and I knew China so much better than I knew Russia because I worked in China for many years and suddenly who do I see? The oligarch, the oligarchs coming on the, on the, on the walk without his gorillas. So without his baby gorillas, well, we just started chatting, right? And we talked and asked, look, this is so amazing what I see just across the border, all these buildings, you know, this, this is very different from, from Blagovishchensk. And he says to me, you know, Thomas, it's true. It's true. We figured out how to build a modern country. The Chinese have no clue. And, you know, I'm sitting here completely blinded by this, but this light, sunrise light, you know, over the Amur river that, you know, I could, I could barely focus, but then I hear what he's saying. They, the Chinese, they never figured out. We have, we Russians have. The word delusional comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have the beliefs that we have, we build upon those beliefs. And even if you see it is going to blind you re questioning your own belief is so difficult but changing people's beliefs is not easy if 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 we in the west hope that somehow by slapping sanctions on russia we're gonna make them dislike their ruler uh then we know nothing about social psychology it doesn't work like this rallying around the flag is the number one tribe reaction in this situation well, I think this is a conversation for next week, but it seems to me that some cultures are more prone to that kind of tribal rallying around the flag than others. And, and Russia is one of them. China is one of them. And you know what I want to ask you next week. So everybody, please join us next week at 11 on Wednesday. Is there something about, uh, the impact of dictatorship or communism? that ends up creating a mindset in people that it's easier or more natural to have people begin to have that as their mindset. I, I think we're a little, we're over time today. I don't want to get into that today, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have. 